The book of Romans, beginning in chapter 1, we'll look at the first 17 verses of Romans 1 under the heading of Pastor Paul. There's Pastor Paul from Romans chapter 1. Let's give our attention this morning to the reading of God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. Dear congregation, Martin Luther once said, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word by word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. The more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, the better it tastes. Today we begin our study on the book of Romans, and for the majority of people, the book of Romans is a daunting prospect. As the Apostle Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work, where he plums the depths of the riches of God's love for us in Christ, it can become daunting for us to take up such a task. On top of the Apostle Paul's depth in this book, this book has maybe spawned more academic study than any other book in the Bible. One can think of just an easy example. Think of the Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached 
372 sermons on the book of Romans alone. It took him 12 years to preach those 372 sermons. Now I see you panicking already. Fear not. See, what can scare us about Romans is not only how deep Romans is, but also how wide Romans is. Maybe there are some of you here who are attending this morning who are concerned. Am I going to be able to understand this book? Is the book of Romans for kids and high schoolers? Is the book of Romans for tradesmen and farmers? For stay-at-home moms? For college students? These are questions we ask when we turn to that first page from Acts to Romans. Well, you may find it interesting this morning that most scholars actually tend to agree that the book of Romans can be summarized in two words. The Gospel. The Gospel. Romans is an epistle of good news. It is not a dissertation on the minute details of justification. It is not a patent on Paul's view of the church. His goal in writing the book of Romans is simply to explain the Gospel. In fact, the word for Gospel, euangelion in Greek, which is found throughout the book, is more often found in his introduction in what we just read this morning in chapter 1, verses 1-17, through and also his conclusion in chapter 15. The place where an author states his theme, his purpose, what he's talking about, six of the nine times he will use that word are stated here. As one scholar notes, if we were to define the theology of the Apostle Paul, we could define his theology like this. The Gospel, the Gospel, the Gospel. Paul is all about the good news. And so some of us, I suspect, need to be challenged this morning. Because we can be tempted to disregard the message already. But this book of Romans is for all of us. Look what he says in verse 15. It's for Greeks and barbarians. It's for the wise and the foolish. It's for the tradesmen and the white collar. It's for the mature in Christ, for the babes, it's for the old, it's for the young. Romans is for you. Now true, Paul will speak about the role of the law in light of salvation. He will speak about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, justification by faith. But all of these things are elaborations of his main thought. The Gospel. That God has looked upon lowly sinners such as you and I. And by no work of our hands, no righteousness of our own, He has provided salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the elders and I have determined that we would like to go through the book of Romans 
not in 12 years. In fact, our goal is to do only one to three sermons per chapter. should only be less than 30 sermons. And to explain the book of Romans simply. The book of Romans simply explained. That our love for Jesus Christ and our understanding of the Gospel might grow up together. That we would see, as Paul talks about in Romans 1, verses 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, that we are guilty before God. And then from 3.20 to chapter 11, that God has saved us by His grace in Christ. And then in chapters 12-16, through 16, how we are to live in light of Christ's grace. That is our gratitude. You're familiar with this, aren't you? We want to see God's, or we want to see our guilt, Jesus' grace, and our gratitude from the book of Romans. So we come this morning in chapter 1 to the introduction of the book of Romans. We see in chapter 1, verse 1, that this book is clearly written by the Apostle Paul. The first word in Romans is his name who after a dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9 is commissioned by God to be what we call the Apostle to the Gentiles. This is a call that Paul took very seriously before he wrote the book of Romans. We believe, he's writing this at the end of his third missionary journey, he has already planted and established nine different churches. He's planted a church in Tarsus, Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. And now he writes that he's on his way to Jerusalem. But his stay in Jerusalem will be short because after he comes to Jerusalem, he plans to go to Rome, and then after he plans to go to Rome, he plans to go to Spain. An often missed aspect in the Apostle Paul's ministry, if you flip to Romans chapter 15 with me this morning, and we see in verse 20, he says, I hope to see you in passing, short stay, as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Very important to our time in the book of Romans is to know that Paul did not start the church in Rome. Nor does he plan to be the pastor of the church in Rome once he gets there. No, he's writing this letter with it in mind that he is still called to preach to pagan people. He's still called to preach to the Gentiles. Those who have never heard the Gospel before. And so he sets his sights as far as Eastern Europe. To Spain. So the question becomes, for those who are observing the book of Romans, if Paul is not the founding pastor, nor is he the next pastor of Rome, the Roman church, why is he writing this letter in the first place? When he writes to Ephesus, or he writes to uh, the Thessalonians, he's been there. He knows those people. What gives you the right, Paul, to write this letter? And what you may find interesting is that the Apostle Paul likely has never met these people. And throughout the book of Romans, he almost always refers to them in the most broadest and general terms. He calls them my fellow believers over 
and over again. And never once in Romans does he refer to a particular situation within the book. Because his goal is to apply the gospel to Christians in general. Christians in general. One scholar says the issues that will be dealt with in this book are ultimately the issues of the world. It's the issue of every church, not just one church. And even though it's a letter written to people, real people, you could, in theory, take your pencil and cross out Romans and write Galatia. And it would still, at its heart, apply to Galatia. You could take a pencil and write Corinth because it would still, at its heart, apply to Corinth. Here, follow me if you're with me. You could cross out Romans and write Trinity United Reformed Church on the top. And it would apply to you and I. Paul is writing this letter because he wants everyone, Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish, ancient and modern, to know that in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is given to us by faith. That's our theme for our time together this morning. That's the theme of the whole book. In the Gospel, the righteousness of God is given to us by faith. So let's look at this truth in three points. We want to see Paul's ministry, verses 1-7, through Paul's mission, Verses 8 through 15, and we also want to see Paul's message. That's Paul's ministry, his mission, and his message. Let's notice first his ministry. In most of his epistles, he begins by first stating that he's an apostle called by God into that office, which he'll mention in a moment. But we see, first of all, that Paul refers to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. With these words, he recognizes that he is not his own master. Uh, To refer or to maybe strike a note of familiarity, he is not his own, but he belongs body and soul and life and death to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, the Greek word for servant here is doulos, which can mean slave. And Rome was full of slaves. And here's the thing about a slave. A slave doesn't live the way they want to live. A slave doesn't work the way they want to work. They do all things for the service of and the pleasure of their master. So Paul is writing this letter not because he is interested in the issues that are going on in the church. He's not doing it to satisfy his own curiosity. He's writing this last letter because his master has commanded him to. And it's, of course, the will of God that He would appoint officers for the church. In Ephesians 4, we're told, He appointed men. God gave gifts to men, to the church. Some pastors, prophets, apostles. And so Paul mentions, not only is that he's a servant, but he's an apostle. Set apart for the Gospel of God. Now, I've told you this story once before, Back in the day when I had Facebook, I saw an ad once on my Facebook. Again, I don't have Facebook. Don't try to add me. I'm not there. I saw an ad there once where there was a few women coming to Toronto who were apostles. 
Well, that made me ask the question, what is an apostle? And by and large, we recognize three criteria for being an apostle. You needed to be called by God, called by Christ, I should say, to preach the gospel. You needed to write with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And third, they were not called to one church. They were called to the whole world. So if you bought those tickets to that conference with the apostles in Toronto, I'd say you should probably rip them up. See, because Paul shows us that he meets this criteria. What's the first thing he says? He says, I was called by God to be an apostle. That God chose Paul, set him apart to be an apostle so that he could preach. Remember, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and called him not to kick against the goads, not to persecute Christians, but to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And not only is he called, but he's called to preach. Look what he says. I'm called to preach the gospel of God that is promised beforehand in the Scriptures, the Son of David. The Apostle Paul is called to preach. Don't miss this, beloved. Paul is saying the whole purpose of this letter, the whole purpose of my ministry is to preach the Word. To proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the whole purpose of the Bible. The grace of our Lord. The prophets spoke of a greater prophet, priest, and king. God promised David that there would be an eternal son who would sit upon an eternal throne. All of the law, all of the prophets attest to this Messiah. He says in verse 3, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son and power according to the Spirit. That is that the man born of Mary in the line of David who lived among us, the man who grew up with us, who ate with us, who walked with us, who wept with us, who lived with us, who died with us, this Christ Jesus was declared by the Spirit to be the Son of God. And through His life, through His death, and through His resurrection, He says there is grace for God's people. So not only is he called to preach, but look, he's called to minister. To live among the people whom he's called to be with. He says that he longs to be with them. Verses 5 and 6. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. He says, I want to be among my people whom I'm called to. Verse 6, including You, Roman believers. That is that a pastor needs to be among his flock. As J. Adams says, a shepherd should smell like his sheep. The criteria for the to be an apostle is met in the Apostle Paul. Do you see that? He's called by Christ. He's called to preach the word infallibly. And he is called 
to minister among the Roman church. You know, there is a word of application whenever the Apostle Paul speaks about his calling. See, what I love about the Apostle Paul is that he's so honest about his weakness. He's so honest in his letters about how unimpressive he is. That he's a sinner struggling with sin. We'll see that in Romans 7. But what he reminds us is that he was still called to preach. And even though he is weak and unimpressive and sinful, that his preaching is still the power of God unto salvation. And even for us today, when sinful, weak, unimpressive men stand in front of you and proclaim the Gospel, it is still, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, how we are saved. It is the power of God. This is how people believe. This is how the Holy Spirit saves individuals. It's through the preaching of the Word. And notice, congregation, that Paul isn't the only one called, is he? Verse 6, you who are called to belong Jesus Christ. Verse 7, called to be saints. We are called from our guilt to the grace of Jesus Christ. Called to live for Jesus Christ. And you say, how do I do these things? How do I throw off my sins? How do I come to Jesus Christ in grace? How do I respond to His grace with gratitude? Look what he says in verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He grounds our call to Christ. He grounds our living in Christ in His favorite word of the book of Romans grace. 24 times in Romans, Paul will talk of Christ's grace. This is the whole of the Christian life. We are justified by grace. We rest on Christ's grace. We stand before God in Christ's grace. And it's also how we live before God in Christ's grace. Secondly, we see that Paul has a ministry. He's called to be that apostle to the Gentiles. We see that he also has a mission. Paul has been called to the ministry of an apostle by God to preach the gospel of his son. And we've alluded to the fact that his mission is to preach to the Gentiles. If you flip to Romans 15, verse 20 with me, we see where he explains this. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has been already named. He is a missionary, if you will, going to unreached people groups. In Romans 11, verse 13, he will even say that famous phrase, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. And this Roman church is in the heart of Gentile territory. Now remember, Paul did not plant this church. There's little evidence to even suggest the Roman Catholic claim that Peter planted this church. So if Paul didn't plant this church, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter probably didn't plant this church, how did this church get here? 
scholars seem to agree that when we read in Acts 20, at Peter's sermon, and the thousands of people who were cut to the heart, we spoke about this morning, and believed upon Jesus Christ and were baptized, we're told in Acts 2, verse 10, that there were many Roman Jews. And so scholars think that these Jews likely heard Peter's preaching, came to saving faith in his message, returned home, and planted this church in Rome. And so it's likely a mix in the Jewish or in the Roman congregation, I should say, of Jewish people and Gentile people coming together in a love for Jesus Christ. But notice with me in verse 8 of Romans 1 that Paul is not jealous about this church. He's not saying, hey, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I need to oversee this mission work. He rejoices. I thank my God through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. A prayer of thanksgiving. That by the work of the Spirit, there are believers in a city known for immorality, in a city known for its idolatry. In just a moment, we see in uh, verse 16, Paul will speak about salvation as the power of God But is the Roman church not a beautiful expression of the power of God? A small group of believers in the darkest part of Rome, the Roman society, in the heart of an evil and wicked nation. And Paul says they are witnessing to their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, their faith is heard throughout the world. This is a powerful lesson for us in our culture today. Our little faith can have a big impact on the world. The Apostle Paul tells us that when we feel that our churches are too little, our faith is too little, and our faith has little impact, that that is not the case. That even little people in a little, with little faith in little churches can be a magnifying glass for the cross for the glory of Jesus Christ. He's rejoicing in their mission. And look what he says in verses 9-15. through We'll just summarize it this morning. But he says, I wish I could be there. I wish I could join in on the mission. Join in in their accomplishment of that great commission. Without ceasing, he says, he keeps praying that he can come to the Roman church, that he might reap some of the harvest of the Gentiles. Again, I keep reminding you, remember that Paul did not plant this church. He's not going to be the next pastor of this church. But he has lofty goals for this church. Look at what he says in verse 11. I want to strengthen you with the spiritual gift. Verse 12, I want to encourage you. Verse 13, I want to gather fruit in you. Look, this is a tall order for someone coming to do pulpit supply. For someone who's just going to stop in for a little while. Before I was called and ordained at this church, if somebody gave me this list before coming and preaching at a church, I'd say, no way! I can't do all that. 
How is he planning to do all this? How can he impart a spiritual gift, encourage them, and gather fruit in just a short visit? In verses 15 through 17, he actually ties this all together. In the theology of the Apostle Paul, the way that you strengthen a church, the way that you encourage a church, the way that you reap the harvest in the church, look what he says in verse 15, is in the preaching of the gospel. In the preaching of the gospel. Now I recognize that not all of us are called to preach. Not all of us are called to be elders and deacons. And Paul even mentions that sometimes you can be providentially hindered. Verse 13, he says, I have been prevented. Some of us may not be called. We may not be physically able either to help in the gospel ministry. But Paul says in verse 13, we can all still be present in prayer for the ministry. Congregation, we are all called to be prayer warriors for the Gospel. If we want our churches to be strengthened, encouraged, and to reap the harvest, to collect that harvest that Jesus talks about, we must first be a people of prayer. Paul's mission is to get involved in the Roman church. And he'll do this by the preaching of the Gospel. And so we come then to that climax of really the whole letter. In verse 16, his message. This is the heart of the whole book of Romans. The thesis of this whole epistle. Young children, you know how when every sermon I tell you what's the main point of the sermon, the one thing you should take away from it, That's what the Apostle Paul is doing in verse 16 and 17. This is the main point. If you don't get anything out of it, get this. That I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. So many people misunderstand Christianity. If I can be honest with you this morning, I was one of those people. I was raised in the church. I sat in those pews every week. And I still thought I had to get to heaven by being a good person. And that one day I would stand before God and on the basis of what I did do or what I did not do would be the factor on whether or not I went to heaven or I went to hell. Maybe some of you feel the same way this morning. Maybe you feel overwhelmed. How can I get to heaven when I struggle with sins? How can I get to heaven when I struggle to read my Bible? Please don't miss the plain teaching of Romans 1. 
there is no power in you to get to heaven. There is no power in your good works to merit eternal life. There is no power in your Bible reading, your church attendance, your tithe to merit your righteousness before God. The message of Jesus Christ crucified is the power of God unto salvation. The plain teaching is this. God saves sinners through the Gospel. That is that when a man stands before sinful people with an open Bible, spiritually dead sinners with no hope of salvation, no way to heaven, people who are under the sentence of death and proclaims that a mediator has come. A mediator has come who can take away your sins. A mediator has come who can make you pure, who can take away the stain of sin from even your most righteous of works. And who has opened the gateway to heaven so that we can walk in by faith and stand before God and He will say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not by any work of our hands, but by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Paul says, God works through that. The Holy Spirit comes alongside that message. That the Holy Spirit applies that message to your hearts. That He reaches into the inner recesses of man. And He can transform and change. That is the power of God. You see, because... Even our best works, congregation, aren't they stained with sin? When we stand before God, what can we say? I went to church every Sunday. I read my Bible every day. But even that won't be enough. What we need is the righteousness of God. Paul says, What's given to us when the Holy Spirit applies Christ to our hearts is God's very righteousness itself. You know, he's drawing here on an Old Testament truth that God, in God, his salvation and his righteousness are brought together. Psalm 98, verse 2 says, The Lord has made known his salvation, he has revealed his righteousness. In the sight of the nations. He says, My salvation will, or Isaiah 51 says, My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. In many instances in the Old Testament, salvation and righteousness convey the same idea. So much so that the Apostle Paul says, The righteousness of God is the very thing that justifies. That is that in the Gospel, Jesus gives the people who believe the preaching of the Word God's very righteousness. 
his own perfect righteousness. A righteousness that, deme- that meets divine approval. A righteousness that meets the demand of God's justice. The glory of the gospel is not that God does not deal with your sins, because that would be salvation without righteousness. Or that God looks the other way. The glory of the gospel is that God gives you His very own righteousness. Martin Luther, like many people, misunderstood what the righteousness of God meant. For many years he understood righteousness, that the righteous shall live by faith, to mean that we prove ourselves faithful by doing what we can in this life. Remember of Martin Luther, this caused him great shame and anguish. He knew he could never measure up. While Martin Luther was assigned to study the book of Romans as a theological professor, and after years of struggling with his own sin and God's righteousness, he wrote this, At last, by the mercy of God, I began to understand this meaning, that the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive, that's without any work of his own hands, righteousness, which merciful God justifies us by faith. For it is written, the just shall live by faith. He, said, he goes on to say, I felt like I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through its open gates. Close quote. This is the essence of the gospel. The righteous shall live by moral perfection? No. The righteous shall live by white-knuckling onto Jesus Christ and holding on to the pearly gates? No. The righteous shall live by faith. God does not grant salvation to those who are moral achievers. God has kept His promise. God will redeem His people by His promise. By giving them His righteousness through faith. Romans declares that we must have faith, but not human faithfulness. Let us rest in Christ. Receive His forgiveness and union with the Lord. So let's conclude this morning. What will be the subject of our study in Romans for the coming months? The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. This is the hope of the world. Christ died for sinners. Have you believed upon Christ this morning? Whether you're Greek or a barbarian, whether you're wise or you're foolish, whether you're young or you're old, you're blue collar or you're white collar, Romans is for you. The gospel is for you. Christ died to save sinners and to give His righteousness to those who believe upon Him in faith. Hallelujah and Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, we do give You thanks for the grace of God in Christ our Lord. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, has been given to a wretch like us, 
like me. We pray, merciful God, your blessing upon our study of the book of Romans in these coming months. May you be pleased to show us, yes, Lord, that even though we are guilty, you do not demand this perfection in order to enter into the glory of heaven. You demand the perfection of your Son, which is given to us by faith through grace. And we give you thanks for him. We ask God your blessing upon us in Christ's name. Amen.